So I like coffee, and I'm a pastor. I think it's actually in the Bible somewhere that if you're a pastor, you have to like coffee. I think that's just kind of the deal. And so uh, I have meetings at coffee shops all the time here in town. That's a regular thing for me. Most of the meetings I have throughout the week, I try to make them at different coffee shops. I've been to a lot of coffee shops here in town. And uh, there is one coffee shop here in town that every single time I go to this particular coffee shop, I feel like I have to check my man card at the door. And I like the coffee. Uh, I like the people who work there. You know, don't take it the wrong way. I'll still have meetings there and everything. But I just every time I go to this coffee shop, for some reason, I feel like I have to just check my man card at the door. And that coffee shop is Big B Coffee. Every time. Now, d- listen, if you like Big B Coffee, still will go there. Still love it. It's a great place. But I, I feel like I can't be a man when I'm there. Going to Big B Coffee says a lot about a man. Uh, like, I am not one. And uh, every time, just try to order one of those drinks and, and feel like a man. Like, the names, even, that they have of their drinks. And you stand there, you're like, oh, uh, yeah, I'll take a teddy bear. Uh, no, wait, make mine a sugar bear. Uh, no, actually, I'll take a cocoa Carmella. I mean, you can't even feel like a man saying those words. And so then you go to the end of the counter, and you get your, your drink in this cute little cup. And then you go, and you, you sit down on this plush couch right in front of this cozy fireplace so you can sip your latte. It's just, it's just you can't even feel like a man. I mean, I need like a dead animal hanging over the fireplace or some, anything would help to just feel like a man. But for a while, you just don't get that experience when you're there. Every time I'm there, I think to myself, my gosh, I feel like I'm checking my man card at the door. Maybe that's just my problem. Maybe that's not the problem you guys have. Um, but uh, when you come to Frontline Church, when you walk in the doors of our church, I hope there is a card that you feel like you have to check at the door. Not, not your man card. Hopefully it's not your man card that you feel like you have to check at the door. But when you come here to Frontline, I hope there's a certain kind of vibe, a certain kind of message that you get that causes you to feel like, man, there's, there's something I got to just sort of check at the door if I'm going to be a part of things here. And that is your consumer card. Uh, I, I feel like if you look around our culture, if you look around at our world, most of the time we are made to feel like we're consumers. Right? I mean, think about it. We are marketed to 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And every place that we go into, every place of business, whatever, we're the customer, right? And so we're told the customer is always right. And it's basically about you. It's about your preferences. It's about your needs. It's about your wants. It's about you, you know, getting the most value for your dollars. So our product had better be worth your money or else you're going to go somewhere else, you know, and get that product somewhere else. And so you're a customer. You're a consumer almost every single place that you go. Um, and so when you come to church, and I hope this is particularly true of Frontline, when you come to Frontline, I hope there's a little bit of a sense that I, I'm being asked to, to check my consumer card at the door. Uh, think about some of the things that we ask people to do here at church. We say, uh, for instance, serve the poor. And, and immediately there's something in us that sort of, it, it chafes against that statement, serve the poor. It chafes against sort of the consumer card that we all carry. It's like, why would I want to do that? Why do they deserve my time? Right? The poor, I mean, they got themselves into the situation. It has nothing to do with me. Why would I give my time to serve the poor? And it sort of chafes against this consumer card. Uh, you may not know this, but right now, um, there's a team from Frontline that's in the air flying to Ethiopia, flying into Addis Ababa, and they're going to be serving <clears throat> for a week there in Ethiopia. But why would I do that? Why would I serve the poor? Or we say, give generously. We, we invite you every week, we say, would you give generously and sacrificially 
And immediately, it, it sort of chafes, doesn't it, against that consumer card. There's this instantaneous, like, well, but that's my money. That's not God's money. That's my money. If you ask me to spend my money or buy something where I get something of value for my, like there's a transaction, that makes sense to me, but, but give? I just give generously? It chafes a little, doesn't it? Uh, or, or we say things like, get in a small group. That's one of the things we want for everybody who's at Frontline is to get into a small group and experience community. And immediately there's this like, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to hang out with people who are different than me and who might not have the same opinions as me, as me or the same emotions as me? They would be different than me. Why would I want to do that with my time? And so there's something every single one of us experiences, I hope, when we come to the church. And it roots back in um, the zero that we're going to be talking about this morning, which is this, the zero we're focusing on today is zero gods before God. Uh, if you were here last week, you know we kicked off a, a vision series where we said we're going to return for the next few weeks to a, the vision of our church. And the vision of our church, if you're new, you may not know it, uh, it's encapsulated in these five zeros that you see on our website and out in the lobby and everything. And basically what we've stated our vision as a church is this, that we are not done. Frontline Church is not done until zero people are living unchanged for Jesus. And so last week we looked at these first two zeros that make up our vision and we talked about what it means to, to experience zero lost people in our community. And then we talked about zero unconnected people in our, our, in our world. That's what we want is for everybody to, to come into a relationship with Jesus and be connected to the body of Christ. Today I want to talk about the zero that's zero gods before God. This is the one I think of all the five zeros that chafes the most as, as we think about it and what it means for our lives. Um, so by the time you get to the story of the Exodus in the Bible, and Exodus is the second book in the Bible, what's happened is... Uh, people at that time were worshiping gods. There were idols for all kinds of different things. Um, by the time you get to Exodus, it was a common practice to have uh, multiple idols and, and you would worship gods. And, and basically what happened is that society had become tribal-centric, meaning it's about my tribe, my people, my ways. And so you had kind of this identity that was with your tribe. And so what people needed is they needed gods that would reflect themselves, gods that would reflect their identity and how they wanted to be perceived. So they had gods for different locations, gods for different needs like fertility or for protection. They had gods for weather. They had gods for favorite sports teams. I mean, you name it, right? I'm just kidding about that last one. They, they had gods for everything in that culture. And so it's not surprising that when God rescues his people and he calls them out of Egypt, and frees them from slavery and from bondage in Egypt. And he sets them apart. He says, you're going to be my holy people. You're going, to be, you're going to represent me to the rest of the world, to the rest of the nations. The very first commandment that God gives his people, the very first thing he teaches them about himself and about what it means to be his people, is he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 3. That's the very first of the Ten Commandments. First thing God says to his people is, you're not, you can't have any other gods before me. Now, that statement chafes. It just does. It chafes against consumerism. It, it chafes against tribalism. It's kind of a smack in the face of, you know, those things that we hold on to. What God was calling his people to be is to be radically surrendered to God first. To be radically surrendered. To have nothing before God. To, to have God as your number one first priority in everything that you do in your life. If God exists 
basically, if you think about your relationship with God, and, and if you would say, God basically exists to help me serve my idols a little bit better, you skipped a step. And the step that you skipped is surrender. Surrender is what God calls us to. He invites us into, be, into being people who are radically surrendered to him first and foremost above everything else. If you think about your prayers, and if most of your prayers are, God bless me, God help me, God give me this, God give me that, in some sense you start getting into this mindset where it's the consumer card mindset where you say, God is basically here to help me serve my idols. God happens to worship all the same idols that I do. And if that's your mindset, then at some point you skip the step of surrender. And surrender is, in my opinion, the critical thing that's necessary for anybody to grow spiritually. Surrender is kind of the base ingredient. If you boil it down to what exactly does it mean to really grow in our relationship with God, it comes down to surrender. Um, so what I want to do is I want to look at a story in Scripture of somebody who decided to be radically surrendered to God first. Um, last week we looked at the story uh, of Philemon. And this week, I, that's in the New Testament. This week I want to look at a story from the Old Testament. So I want to talk about the story of Hannah and her son Samuel. You find it in the Bible in 1 Samuel chapter 1 is where the story begins. And so to give you a little bit of background of this story, basically there's a, a man named Elkanah and he has two wives. And his two wives are named Hannah and Peninnah. Those are their names, Hannah and Peninnah. Any pregnant ladies in here? Peninnah. That's a great name right there um, if you're looking for some creativity and baby names. And so uh, a lot of people right away, they get hung up on the whole polygamy part, right? So when you say, well, there was a man and he had two wives, and you go, well, that, that's in the Bible? Like that's actually part of the Bible? Yes, it is. And so a word about polygamy, just so we're clear, uh, God never promotes polygamy. The Bible never promotes polygamy as like a, a form of marriage that God affirms. It, it's, it was an ancient practice that was very common for all people at this time, and God's people participated in it. But if you study the Bible, at no point anywhere is polygamy held up as kind of the ideal. Hey, this is what we're aiming for. The Bible never affirms that as, as the kind of marriage that God is actually promoting, okay? So all that to say, don't get hung up on the whole polygamy part. But, but there's this man named Elkanah, Elkanah. He has these two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Now, Hannah is barren. She can't have children. And Peninnah, the other wife, has children, Multiple children she's able to have with her husband, with their husband, I should say. And so what happens is it creates this natural rivalry between the two. Now to add to that rivalry, to pour some gas on that fire, um, the Bible says that Elkanah really loves Hannah. And the kind of the assumption there is maybe he doesn't love Peninnah as much, but he loves Hannah. And so what he does is he gives Hannah a double portion of food. So, so imagine if you're Peninnah and you've got all these kids and you're looking at this other wife, and you can tell, well, our husband really loves her, and he keeps giving her extra and more food and, and just takes care of her. And I'm the one who actually has all these kids to take care of, but she's the one getting the double portion. And you can see it begins to start this rivalry. There's this ugly, like, rivalry happening in the family uh, between these two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Now, uh, what's interesting is that infertility at this time in history was not just a heartbreaking situation. Although it is a heartbreaking situation, there's many people in our church who have gone through that journey. And it's difficult even in our day. It's, it's heartbreaking even in our day when people go through uh, infertility. But in that day, what you need to understand is that a woman's value in society at this time was really defined by her ability to have children. 
it was the main marker or indicator of value for a woman, is whether she could have children or not, particularly whether she could have a son or not. Now, of course, what we know today is really that has nothing to do with the woman. It actually has something to do with the man, right? But they didn't understand that back then. In fact, uh, statistics were about one in every three women died in childbirth in that day. And the children often died too. And so it was a common practice where a man would marry multiple wives to kind of increase the chances that there's a, a woman who survives and has children. So a woman's value in that society is can you give birth? Can you have children, particularly a son? And so imagine being Hannah. That's where your value comes from. And in that, you know, today we like go on Facebook and compare our lives to other people's lives, right, all the time. But, it, but I mean, think about Hannah. It was just right there in her face every single day. Every single day there is a reminder viscerally of what you are not. Every day there is a reminder. There's this other wife, and she can have children, and you can't. And so every day there's this reminder, I'm less than, my value is in question, and she feels like garbage. And then the other wife hates her because she's kind of loved by the husband. And so this rivalry just keeps going in their family. And so um, on one of their annual trips to the temple, and this day God's people would make these annual pilgrimages, these annual trips to the temple in Jerusalem. And on one of these family trips, you know, you gather everybody together and it's kind of like a big convoy. You go to, together uh, to the temple. And so Hannah is just being ridiculed by Peninnah. Peninnah is just making fun of her. It's just, she's just thrown in her face. I have children and you don't. I, I am somebody and you're nothing in our society. And so, and there's nowhere to go. There's no escape. They're on this long trip together and they're in Jerusalem. And so Hannah is just broken by this. And so she goes into the temple and she begins to weep and she begins to cry out to God and she, she lowers her head and her mouth is moving because she's praying. And she's off in this corner of the temple just crying out to God and praying. And Eli the priest... Who's, who works there in the temple, he sees Hannah off in a corner and she's praying and she's got her head bowed and her lips are moving and he immediately assumes that she must be drunk. Which makes me think, what was going on in your church at that time that that is your immediate assumption? Oh, there's a woman there with her head bowed and her lips are moving. Clearly, she, another drunk woman here at church. And so he goes over to confront her and basically tell her, you can't be drunk in the temple. That's not cool. You need to go. And she, she immediately says, no, 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 you've misunderstood. I'm not drunk. And she begins to pour her heart out. She tells Eli, the priest, her whole story. And she's begging God. She's asking God to bless her with children. And so Eli, the priest, is moved, and he begins to pray for her. He starts to pray for Hannah that God will bless her, that God will give her a child. And then uh, 1 Samuel 1, verse 11, it says, And she, Hannah, made this vow. Now, pay attention to that. That's very important for everything that we're going to talk about after this. It doesn't say she made a statement. It doesn't say she asked a question. It doesn't say that she prayed a prayer. It says, and, and then Hannah made this vow. So she's making a vow here. O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. What? Didn't see that coming, did you? Uh, some early manuscripts of this says, uh, a sign that he'll be dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut, and he will, neither, he will drink neither wine nor intoxicants. 
Now, why in the world would she say that? You, you understand? She's saying, I, I, here's my vow, God. If you bless me with a son, if you allow me to conceive and have a, a, a male child, I will give him back to you. I will offer him uh, back to you, Lord, and I swear for his entire life, I will never cut his hair and I will never let him have any craft beer. I promise. What? Whenever you're reading the Bible and you're reading a story and you get to a part of the story that just sort of, it, it, like it makes no sense at all and it jumps out at you, pay attention because what that usually means is that, that whatever is being said there is probably referring to something that happened earlier in the story of the Bible. Okay, so what many scholars believe is happening here is that Hannah is making uh, a Nazarite vow. And in the book of Numbers, uh, the book of Numbers is part of the first five books of the Bible known as the Torah. It encapsulated the law of Moses. And the book of Numbers specifically talked a lot about the ceremonial law, how to make vows, how to make sacrifices, and how, what were the kind of the regulations for that. Numbers chapter 6 outlines something called the Nazarite vow. And many people believe that's what Hannah is referring to here, number six, verse two, let me just kind of give you, here's what it says. If any of the people, either men or women, take the special vow of a Nazarite, setting themselves apart to the Lord in a special way, they must give up wine and other alcoholic drinks. And then it goes on, they must never cut their hair throughout the time of their vow, for they are holy and set apart to the Lord. Until the time of their vow has been fulfilled, they must let their hair grow long. So this was a vow that people could take. Uh, and so if you took this vow, basically, you know, and the question is, why would somebody want to do that? Why would somebody take a Nazarite vow? The word Nazarite comes from the Hebrew word Nazir, and it means to, be, to consecrate or to be set apart. So when you're taking this vow, you're, you're setting yourself apart for a holy purpose. You're saying, I'm separating myself from everyone else. I'm setting myself apart as to, to be used by God for a holy purpose. And then it calls it a special vow. The Hebrew word there is palah. Special meaning it wasn't mandated. You didn't have to do it. God didn't make anyone take the Nazarite vow any more than he makes people take marriage vows. It was optional. But basically the word palah, sometimes it's translated as special when it calls it a special vow. Other times it's translated in the text as wondrous or miraculous. So in other words, if someone was saying, I want God to move in my life in a miraculous way. I want God to move in my life in a wondrous way, in a, in a special way. I want God to move in my life. Therefore, I'm going to set myself apart with this vow, this Nazarite vow. And the indications of that will be, I won't cut my hair, and I won't have any alcoholic beverages. This is what they would do to to set themselves apart. Now, um, sometimes people would do na the Nazarite vow for a season, but there are multiple re uh, examples of when someone was set apart as a Nazarite for their entire life, as Samuel is going to be. Um, so in the text, some of you know the biblical story of Samson. Remember that? Samson, the strong guy. And um, the reason that Samson lost his power when uh, Delilah, the woman, cut his hair is because he was a Nazarite. He was a Nazarite by birth. The text says that. So the reason he lost his, his power when his hair got cut had nothing to do with his hair follicles. It had to do with this vow. I made this, his vow, his life was meant to be set apart as a Nazarite. And so what he did is he, he broke that vow in that moment. Uh, John the Baptist in the New Testament, where it talks about he ate only locusts and honey. He had this strict diet. He let his hair grow long and he wore clothes. 
that were weird and all this kind of stuff. Many people believe he was a Nazarite set apart by birth, set apart by God for a holy purpose to be used by God in a special, wondrous, miraculous way. Uh, you see this again and again. So what ha- what's happening here is Hannah is saying, God, if I'm making a vow right now, if you bless me, if you hear my prayer, if you give me a son, if you move in my life in a wondrous, miraculous way, I will give him back to you. And he will never, he'll be a Nazarite for his entire life. He'll never have an alcoholic drink and he will never cut his hair. Thanks, mom. Appreciate that. This is something she decided for her son. And so what happens as a result of this is uh, she goes away from the temple and God hears and answers her prayer. She conceives and she gives birth to a male child. His name is Samuel. And so what Hannah does is she comes back to the temple. She finds Eli the priest who had prayed for her. And she says, here you go. I'm offering my son back. I'm fulfilling my vow. And she offers Samuel back to the temple. So he's going to be raised in the temple. He's going to be set apart by God for a holy purpose. And she gives him to Eli the priest to be raised. Now, two things happen as a result of Hannah's decision uh, to surrender her son. The first one is Samuel grows up to be the kingmaker of Israel. There's only one thing better than being a king, and that's being a kingmaker. And Samuel is the person who anoints the first two kings of Israel, Saul, and then he anoints David, king of Israel. And what we know about David is that it's through David's kingdom and it's through David's line and his bloodline that Jesus comes and the entire redemption of the entire world and the eternal king Jesus enters the story of God so in some way even us we're sitting here in this room we are a product in some way of the way God worked through Samuel and his life set apart for God for a holy purpose the other thing that happens is that Hannah has five more children so as she offers her son as a tithe, basically, to God, as she, she says, I'm going to fulfill my vow, God bless me, God blesses her with five more children after that, as she's faithful with that vow. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, the Bible never mentions those other five children again. You never hear about them again in the text. It, it says God blessed her with five more children, um, but then basically the storyline focuses on Samuel and on the kings that he anoints. That's where the story goes from there. In other words, what God used in Hannah's story was what she was willing to radically surrender to God. God blesses her with five more children, but you don't hear about them anymore. What God actually uses in Hannah's life, and the reason her story exists, the reason somebody felt like it was important enough to keep it in the Bible and for us to read it today, is the whole point of it is God radically used what Hannah was willing to radically surrender back to God. I would say this same thing is true for us. God will use you as much as you are willing to surrender him. God will use you in as much as you're willing to open-handed surrender to him. The things that we hold on to in our lives, it's not, I think God just kind of says, well, good luck with that. But the things that we're willing to radically surrender to God, that's what he multiplies. That's what he blesses, and that's what he uses. That's the stuff we really get to see God use, is the stuff that we're willing to fully surrender to him. There's a guy in our church um, who serves in our children's ministry. If you, if you have kids in the kids' ministry, uh, your kids know him as Mr. Pat. And that's how my kids grew up and, and knew him. And uh, I remember when Mr. Pat first came to Frontline. Um, it was early on when I had just become the lead pastor. 
And Mr. Pat at that time had not been a Christian for very long. He would tell you that he was still very young in his faith. And so uh, early on in, in coming to the church, he, uh, he decided to surrender his consumer card at the door, and he responded to an invitation to get involved serving in our kids' ministry, which we now call The Block. And so he, he got involved. He went to the children's pastor at the time and said, hey, I'm willing to get involved serving, and, uh, which was awesome. Uh, he's a businessman by, um, by trade, and so he said, this is the area I can go serve in as I want to teach kids. And so uh, t- what, what's true, and you may not know this, but every single person who applies to serve in our kids' ministry has to submit themselves to a, like a background check. They have to, uh, you know, go through this, like, background check, and their record is brought up and everything. And so very early on, Mr. Pat kind of comically had to pull aside our children's pastor at the time and say, uh, listen, I know you had this background check run. There's some things on my record that are going to pop up I just need to let you know about. And he has to have this, like, awkward conversation with this person he barely knows. Now, thankfully, the stuff that was on his record had nothing to do with anything that would, you know, prohibit him from serving in kids' ministry or being a part of it. But right away, there's, like, this awkward thing he has to go and kind of has to surrender his own vulnerability uh, and talk about things he wasn't probably wanting to talk about. But thankfully, for all of us, he said yes and continued to serve in our kids' ministry. And about uh, sometime in his first year serving, in our kids' ministry, we started as a church our first capital campaign to finish the children's ministry. Um, you, you may not know this, when we first moved into the building here, uh, that side of the building that is now our kids' ministry was basically just a big open warehouse. So kids, you know, we were basically set it up and tried to keep kids from grabbing something sharp and poking themselves in the eye with it. It was an awesome kids' ministry. It was actually more of a deterrent, it almost felt like, some days to have that kids' ministry. And so we said, um, we want the congregation to give. And we called upon you to give generously so that we could begin to transform that side of the building into a children's ministry. And so Mr. Pat, still very young in this whole uh, journey, what he decided to do is he decided to give up smoking. And so being a, a smoker for years and years, he had developed quite a habit. So he, decided, he actually figured out the amount of money that he was spending every week on cigarettes. And what he said is, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to offer cigarettes basically on the altar of God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to surrender those to God. I'm going to say, I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to take the money that I was spending on smoking. I'm, that's going to be, he, he actually calculated that up for an entire year, what he was spending, and he made that the, the pledge, the donation. And what happened is he gave up smoking. He fulfilled that commitment, and he hasn't looked back since. He hasn't continued smoking. And that got broken his life. And so he continued to serve, continued to be a part of things. And when we finally got to the point a few years later where we were ready to actually start construction on what is now the block, our kids' ministry over there, we looked around our our church and we said, who in our church has the capacity to lead a project like that? Um, Who who has the ability to do that? And uh, it definitely wasn't going to be me. I could mess up a one-car parade. Uh, I don't know which end of the hammer to use. I have multiple times hurt myself trying to repair things in my own house. It definitely was not going to be me that was going to lead the process. And uh, we really didn't have anybody else on staff. The choice was obvious. Mr. Pat had the love for Jesus, uh, the commitment to our kids, and the background and experience as a project manager lent itself to it as well. And so I asked him, and he sold out again and bought into what I would guess was probably one of the hardest seasons of his life, surrendering his time and his energies and just giving and giving. And uh, when you today go pick up your kids back here in the block, you will be standing in a space 
that happened because one guy in our church said, I will be radically surrendered to God. I will just surrender myself one more time. Yeah. Again and again and again. I'm telling you, God will use whatever you're willing to surrender. The stuff you hold on to, you probably won't be talking about that at the end of your life. Nobody's going to be talking about that at the end of your life. Nobody in the Bible talks about the other five children Hannah had. The stuff God will use is the stuff that you're willing to radically surrender to him. That's the things that you and I will be talking about in eternity, is whatever we've radically surrendered to God. Now, while the Nazarite vow is an Old Testament concept, um, there is a New Testament parallel. So when you come to the New Testament, Romans 12, and by the way, there's reference that Paul um, uh, completed a Nazarite vow, by the way, too, in his life. And Paul was the one who wrote these words in Romans 12.1. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. What's the pattern of this world? It's tribalism. It's consumerism. It's the message that me, 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 it's about me. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You want to know what God's will is for your life? I don't know. Seriously, don't ask me. Don't, don't form a line and ask me. I don't know. If you want to know what God's will is for your life, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. The, the first step is surrender yourself fully to God. Zero gods before God is what we want for everybody in our church to get to this point of saying, I'm going to be radically surrendered. It's God first. I'm going to be set apart for a holy purpose. I'm going to come to a place in my relationship with God where I say, God, I'm, I'm going to offer myself to you. There's nothing in my life that I'm going to white knuckle grip hang on to. It's all yours. And, and here's the good news. God will use whatever you radically surrender to him. What's his will for you? I don't know, show, show me what's in your hand that you're surrendering to God. He'll use whatever it is that you surrender to him. If it's your whole self, it's your whole being, there's quite a bit he's going to do with you. If it's this, one, one little thing, but everything else is like, no, that's mine, I'm holding on to that. Um, I don't, I, it's hard for me to tell what, what God would do or what God wants to do in your life. I love this quote by Andrew Murray, somebody I've just been reading recently great spiritual writer. He says, God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life fully yielded to him. It's an incredible quote. God is ready to assume full responsibility for our lives when only when we are fully yielded to him and fully yielded to what he wants to do. A lot of times, I think that we think about spiritual growth in terms of addition Right? And because that's consumerism. That's what's been drilled into us. So, in other words, if I want to grow spiritually, it's about getting this item. I get this book. I get this resource. I put this information in my head. I put that. It's addition, right? Just add more and add some Jesus to everything I'm already doing, right? That's how I grow spiritually. And, and certainly, sometimes that can, that's helpful. But if you want to know a little secret, the, the reality is the only way that people really grow spiritually is through subtraction. It's surrendering. God will use and he'll grow in your life whatever it is you're willing to surrender to him. God will multiply and bless whatever it is that you're willing to open-handed let go of. So the question I want us to wrestle with uh, this morning is just the question, what are you holding on to? 
I mean, this is it, right? And you know what I've discovered for most of us? When we really get to this point, we start talking about this zero. Zero gods before God. What does it mean for me to be radically surrendered? What does it mean for all of us as a church to be radically surrendered to God? We start to ask this question, what are you holding on to? Usually it's not a list of like 20 things for most people. Uh, usually it's one thing. For most of us, it's, it just boils down to one thing. There's one thing I'm like white knuckle gripped about. God, you can use this, you can use this, you can use this part of my story, you can use this thing in my life, but not that this is mine. And, I, and I'm holding on to this one. You know what it is for me? I, I started thinking about what is this for me? What am I holding on to in this season of my life? What is it that I'm having a hard time being radically surrendered to? And if there was a metaphor for it, it would be this right here. It's my, my time. Uh, I would be the first to say to you if, you, you know, if you were to ask me, what are your priorities in life, Brian? I would be very quickly to say, God is first. God is my number one priority. Uh, and my second priority would be my marriage with Carrie, my wife. My third priority would be my boys. We have four boys. Uh, and then fourth would be the church. So no offense, but you guys come fourth. The church would be number four on that list of priorities. But if I were to put my calendar up here on the screen, which I'm not going to do, uh, but if you were to look at my calendar and what's taking up my time right now, you would very quickly surmise, Brian, you're cheating. You're cheating. Because the truth is, right now, if you look at my calendar, the church is getting a ton of my time right now. And meetings and requests and good things going on and, and pressures and demands. The next thing uh, that's getting my time is my kids' schedule. We're at a stage of life right now where there's soccer practices and play practices and musical stuff and social events. And we've got kids just going to, to three different schools right now, three different campuses anyway of schools, and all the drop-offs and pickups. There are nights where I don't get home till 8 or 9 p.m. And I've just, I put like 250, 300 miles on my car that day, just driving, driving, driving. And then third, I'd say my wife can have my leftovers, whatever sort of leftover with my time, my energy. And God, if I'm being honest, as your pastor, God is not right now getting my time the way he should. And so I would say to you, what am I holding on to? I, got, I know I got to fix that. That's something that's got to be different now. I've got to be willing to say, God, my day starts with you. My, you are the first thing on my calendar. No gods before God. The very first thing is you. And then everything else has to fall in line from there. Even though we say it a lot of times when we really get down to it, but what are we actually giving our time, giving our energy to. Someday in eternity, it's not going to be the stuff that we held on to and that we said that we, I mean, I just felt a lot of pressure and I wanted to be like everybody else, so I just had to do this. It'll be the stuff that we radically surrender to God that we'll all be sitting around talking about because that'll be the stuff that he multiplied and blessed and used for his glory. Some of you are on that journey and you know what that feels like. So, but what is it for you? What are you holding on to? What is that one thing that you'd say, man, this is, I'm white knuckle grip with this. You can have everything else, God, but you can't have this one thing. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's um, just a part of your story that you want to remain hidden, remain untold. God will use whatever you surrender to him. And it'll be the greatest adventure of your life. Why don't we do this? Why don't we stand? I'd love to just enter into a time of prayer and then we're going to sing. And maybe for some of us, as we're singing the words of this song, 
um, in a minute. Maybe this is just our, our way, maybe a public repentance, <laughs> if, you, if you like that term. Maybe it's just time to just say, God, you can have all of me. You can have all of me. You can even have this. Whatever that is in your life, in your heart, maybe just right now even you begin to say that. So God, we just come before you in this time and we just recognize, uh, Lord, that, that what you've called us for is to be set apart for a holy purpose. To be people who put you first in our lives, to have zero gods before you. And so, um, Lord, we give ourselves to the spiritual growth practice of subtraction right now. We look at our lives and we just say, Lord, what, what is it that we need to surrender? And for some of us in this room, maybe it's obvious. Maybe it's immediate. For others of us, maybe there's some work we need to do to allow you to continue to speak to us about that. But God, right now, we just want to say thank you, Lord, for the way that you invite us, not just to, not just to, to give up and to surrender and to die to things in this world, to check our consumer card at the door. Um, but God, you invite us into being used by you for your kingdom. So God, we just ask that, that you would multiply and that you would bless and that we, you would use the things that even right now in this room, God, we're surrendering to you. We just say, maybe for the first time, you can have all of me, God. You can have my life fully surrendered to you. It's yours, God. For any of us who maybe we're ready to just say my entire life, it's going to be no closet door lock, no, you know, lock on anything in my life that God can't have. I'm going to be fully surrendered to Jesus. Maybe even right now in this moment is the moment we just say, Lord, you can have my life. I confess you as Lord. I give you my life. I, I, I even give you the, the junk in my life. I turn from my sins. I repent and I put you first in everything. Maybe for us, God, this is just that, that moment of just saying it. You can have it all, God, because you're worth it all. So God, do what you need to do in us. Show us what you need to show us. And, and we want to be people who live radically surrendered to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.